Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. On today's episode, Ian sits down with Nate Boyer, ex-NFL football player and Army Green Beret. Nate received a Bronze Star while serving and was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan. While in service and in between deployments, he walked onto the Texas Longhorns football team in 2010 and quickly became a long snapper in 2011, with little to no experience playing football prior. He signed with the Seattle Seahawks in 2015 and today is a sought-after public speaker involved in a number of organizations such as Mission 60, Waterboys.org, and Merging Vets and Players, of which he co-founded. On this episode, Ian and Nate discuss the challenges Nate has faced throughout his military and football careers, as well as how he overcame them and what advice he has for anyone working to accomplish their dreams today. Mission Daily is created by our team at Mission.org. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. We have in studio, Nate, what's going on? Hey, how are you? You know, it's a great day. And uh, we're going to get into everything your background. It's a hot day, actually. It is a hot day. It's a hot <laughs> day in the Bay Area, which is, I feel like, pretty rare. We're going to talk about your career, your business career. We're going to talk about MVP, the NFL, Longhorns, all that stuff. But first, why did you decide in the first place to get into the military? 9-11 had a little bit to do with that. But that wasn't the ultimate uh, catalyst, I guess to get me to enlist. It was, I was 20 years old when 9-11 happened. I was living in Los Angeles, um, grew up in the Bay area, moved down to San Diego after high school, worked on a fishing boat for a little while. And then I was either going to be a firefighter or go see about this film industry stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really have any connections to it. I didn't know much about it. Um, so I just figured I'd move up to LA, try and figure it out sort of on the fly. And I did, I went up there and I basically just partied for a couple of years. I, I mean, I worked odd jobs. Uh, I actually worked with autistic kids for a little while, which was really rewarding. And then, you know, a couple of years after 9-11, you know, we're starting to send more troops overseas. And I was kind of thinking more about it, but still just didn't know if it was right for me. I ended up doing some backpacking around the world, just traveling, you know, on the cheap and ended up doing some relief work in the Darfur, which is in... Uh, Western Sudan along the Chadian border where all these refugee camps were. It was the midst of this genocide that's still going on, but it was kind of at its height in 2004. And I went out there just on my own and kind of BS my way into a volunteer position. And it completely changed my life. Spent two months there working with those people, you know, assisting in the medical centers, playing soccer with the kids every day, speaking with a lot of the elders. It's mostly women and children at these camps. And I just, you know, realized that not only are these people worth fighting for, but I wanted to be a part of fighting for those that can't fight for themselves. Yeah. And so I made that decision uh, in my last week in country there. I actually got malaria and I'm bedridden. This family put me up on this cot and I'm listening to BBC radio and it was the second battle of Fallujah, like the play by play of yep. that. And, you know, these brave Marines that were, were, were over there sacrificing so much. And they were, I mean, I was 23 at the time. These guys are, most of them are four years younger than me. And I felt like I hadn't really done much to sort of earn that. I, I just took a lot for granted and, you know, was sort of an anti everything kind of person <laughs> and came back home, found out about the 18 x-ray program which would let you try out for the special forces in the army, even though you didn't have prior military experience, if you passed these, these different tests and qualified. 
And I enlisted with that 18 x-ray program in early uh, 2005, actually, is when I finally went off to basic training. And yeah, that was that's how I got in. What type of fishing boat was it? It was a uh, charter fishing boat. It was called, called the Cherokee Geisha. It was about a hundred footer. Um, we'd take out groups of roughly 40 uh, people on these, uh, you know, these deep sea fishing expeditions, yeah. go about a hundred miles offshore down into Mexican waters. Typically we're caught, we caught uh, albacore, bluefin, tuna, um, yellowtail, sometimes like random mako sharks and some other trash fish, mackerel. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was really hard work. It was really rewarding. I also didn't have experience in that when I started out there, I kind of BS my way out of that job. First day on the boat, we're coming back, uh, through some rough waters and I'm like puking over the side <laughs> in front of like the, the clientele, you know what I mean? But, uh, they're like, tie a, uh, yeah, tie like, a, tie a, you know, whatever not. And you're like, yeah, now which, which one of Google those in <laughs> yeah. the year 2000 either. So, but I worked hard, you know, and I ended up getting the, getting the gig, but yeah, that was, uh, that was my first year on my own. It's a very blue collar job. That's kind of what I wanted to do coming out of high school. I was like, I don't want to go to college. I want to like earn a living, you know? And it was a little bit of venture with that. It just made sense. So when you got into the army, especially being a green beret, you know, for those of us who served in the military, I think we, we kind of know what it takes to, do that type of training, how difficult that is. Right. But you get through that stuff. I don't know if you BS your way through that too, but uh, you get- I'm BSing BSing my way through this right now. (laughs) Through this interview. (laughs) I love it. Um, You find yourself in Iraq, you find yourself in Afghanistan. You know, what was it like? What were the challenges like to go from, you know, being on the fishing boat, trying your luck with acting, doing this stuff to being somewhere where you're surrounded by a group of guys and, you know- it's on you. There's, there's nothing else. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta adapt, improvise, adapt, overcome, uh, pretty quickly to things. You gotta have thick skin because not everything's going to go your way. You're going to have a lot of responsibility. You're going to have people in your ear uh, and in your rear, uh, at all times. And you've got to make the mission successful. Like at the end of the day, at all costs, by any means necessary, you have to make mission and so there's only so much you can learn in a schoolhouse. You know, we talk about that with kids that go to college, you know, but it's the very same in the military, like schoolhouse experience never even comes close to the real thing. And yeah, so going over there, I think that trip to the Darfur helped me a lot because yeah, totally. I had experience of like being self-sufficient, being in a developing country, a war-torn country and, you know, keeping a level head, being understanding I think the number one thing that helped get me through that was uh, how I was able to relate to people that I didn't have a lot in common with. Totally. A lot of cultural differences, language barriers, things I just didn't really understand. But there, I'm sure there's a million things about my cultures and my experiences that those people didn't understand. Being able to find that common ground, whether it's through humor or uh, pain or, you know, anything, family, brotherhood, like at the end of the day, we're so much more similar than different. So that really helped me sort of assert myself uh, as someone on the team that was respected, even though I was the, the new guy, you know, um, but also it helped me with indigenous forces when you're working with those lo- you know, locals. I mean, in the special forces, foreign internal defense is like the number one thing we do. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, we're at combat. Yeah, we're, you know, going after bad guys, but at the same time, we're trying to build that place up. We're trying to 
you know, make these people self-sustainable so they can, you know, by the grace of God, one day uh, protect themselves, defend themselves, you know, but it's tough when they don't have the, the education and the finances and all the things that we have here, the access that we have in America. But anyway, yeah, that was like, that's what helped not just get me through that, but helped me sort of thrive over there. Also, I, I love austere environments. <laughs> I like kind of being out in the wild with not a lot of options, you know, too many options for me is a dangerous thing. Cause I like, <laughs> you're the ultimate idle hands guy. I can't, I can't go to the grocery store. I have to go to Trader Joe's or smaller because <laughs> if there's too many options, I'm up and down every aisle and I'm yeah. like two hours in the grocery store and I got like eight things. I'm the same way. It's terrible. I, yeah. No, I just walk around the grocery store. People say store like, oh, you're around. just indecisive. I'm like, no, I have like major FOMO. <laughs> and like, yeah. I don't. And I also like want to make sure I'm making the best choice possible. So if I don't put myself in those environments, the more austere, the better. So at what point in your deployment did you start looking twice at the football hanging around the fob <laughs> and say, I got some unfinished business. Yeah. Towards, uh, towards the end of, of, uh, my deployment to Iraq, I went to Iraq one time and sort of the last few months, you know, I was approached by my team sergeant about reenlisting because I only had, I think two years left in my contract or something. And you usually, you can reenlist about a year out typically, you know? And so I started thinking about it and I was thinking about, you know, I was 28 at the time and 27, 28. And I remember, you know, thinking if I don't, uh, and if I don't like go to college now, cause I, I was finally feeling like I wanted to, I probably never going to go. Once I hit my thirties, I feel like I won't do it. So I decided that I was going to, you know, transition out. Eventually I went into the national guard after my first year in college, but I was going to get out of the military. I was going to go back to school. And I was going to do the one thing that I'd never had done, but always regretted, which was play football or at least well, try to. never played? Never played. You're freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> never played. I regretted it greatly. I played, you know, baseball, basketball. I ski raced. Uh, I mean, every other sport almost. Soccer. But I never played football when I was really, really young. It was just different now. They didn't have the protection I think they had now and the kids weren't taught the game like as well as they are now, oh, totally. it was just like run through the other person's soul. Was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no. hundred percent. Don't be a pansy, like yeah, whatever. Yeah. Head down and grab some cloth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and my dad had some injuries when he played, he played football and, and wrestled in high school and he was pretty good. And, uh, you know, so I don't, my mom, she didn't, I don't think she said, she claims she didn't, she did she never said that I can't play, but I feel like it was discouraged. And so I didn't. And then by the time I was like, you know, 13, 14 and I could, do it if I wanted. I was so into baseball, basketball, but I also had that typical 13, 14 year old fear of like, what if I don't make it? What if I'm not good? You know, blah, 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 that crap. And I didn't do it, but I like regretted it, you know, and bothered me because it's my favorite sport. It's always been my favorite sport, like football season. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was Joe Montana for Halloween two years in a row when I was like four and five. So I was, I was Steve Young. And then the next year I was Jerry Rice. My mom just tape or just added a white out a zero and just put the put red tape or like red whatever tape and then the white tape over it yeah that's good terrorist from my favorite player that's good all right man i got to meet i've met both of those guys good guys but yeah so i mean i just turned 29 when i ended up going down to texas and i trained for it i mean i started like you said i started training over in iraq i was i was running routes in the sand and like trying to teach myself how to backpedal (laughs) i started putting on a little bit of weight and 
you know, doing the Olympic lifts and all these different things, preparing myself. And, and then I, you know, get there and these kids are so much more athletic than me. Oh, yeah. They're stronger, they're faster, they're bigger, they're 10 years younger. <laughs> and, uh, so. And you're going for safety, you know, which is yeah. like, and I, you know, I get it. Size profile, all that Not stuff. Not a lot of options. It yeah. was like slot receiver or safety. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which in retrospect, slot receiver wouldn't have been a bad idea. It wouldn't have been. I just I have good hands, but I'm just not quick, man. You got to be quick. Yeah, yeah. You got to be fast. Like I just never had explosive speed, like in any sport, even, I mean, I played, when I played basketball in high school, I played power forward. Yeah, I'm, no, like, yeah. I'm like 5'10 in cleats. You yeah. know what I mean? Or 5'11 in cleats. But uh, it's because I was like a tough, I was always a tough guy, a hustle guy. You know, I boxed out and did all that stuff. And so football, it was like, once I got, to school, I was like, it's got to be safety. Best chance of playing special teams. Also, it's like you're doing the hitting versus getting hit. Uh, but even then, man, like, unless I was coming down in the box, if I had to play like middle field safety, like I'm not, I'm not catching anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was a safety for that first year on the scout team and just, just got trucked on, on a regular basis. Well, you walked on to Texas. You did walk on to Texas. Like, I mean, we're not exact. We're not talking about, you know. It probably didn't hurt. Alcorn State. I was a Green Beret. Didn't hurt. Yeah. I had I the, and mentally, like, I a glue had, guy. You're a glue guy. Yeah. And so, I had, man, like, when we, if we ran, you know, 20 hundred yard sprints, I'm running the same speed on the first one as the 20th. Yeah. Year. And I'm not like, and I'm not like sandbagging on the first one. It's just, I have endurance. Yeah. But I'm not fast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I get beat by 10 yards by all these guys in my position group on the first one. And I'm beating them by 10 yards on the last one because their power, speed, explosiveness. And I'm just like, you know, the, the turtle, yeah, totally. <laughs> but the same speed. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I just hustled to everything and was that extra, extra time in the weight room and coaches noticed all that stuff, man. I mean, that, that applies to any facet of life. I think people know that it's just people don't ever do it, but if you outwork everybody, like it gets noticed and usually you get opportunities. You wanted to play, obviously. You wanted to be yeah. a starter. I wanted to be a starter. I felt like in the locker room, you know, like coaches encouraged me like, yeah, you, know, you, you should be more vocal and like be more of a leader. And I'm like, I'm not playing. I'm not on the field in games and meaningful snaps. Like I'll cover down on kickoff when we're blowing somebody out. But like, I'm sorry, you know, but I just, I didn't really tell them that. I, that's one of the reasons though I kind of held back from stepping up in leadership roles because I was like, I'm, I'm a scout team guy. Like you should be, you know, in the gunfight, <laughs> you know, if you're the one telling people how they need to be doing this and that. So I wanted to find, desperately needed to find a way on the field. That's how, man, I felt the same way. And I was the, I always joke, I was the 22nd best player on my, on my high school team and we won the championship. And it's like, really, I wasn't because our, our kicker and punter was better than me too. So like, I was really like, yeah, but, uh, but I started at corner and it was one of those things where. I just, it was one of the biggest lessons for me in, in after I got out of the military was this idea that like, you now control all of your own destiny and you can be whatever leader you want because you can just go get domain expertise in it. And that was the thing I always felt really awkward in high school. I'm like, I'm not going to be vocal. Like the dude, that dude torches me every day in practice. You know right. what I mean? Like I'm the guy who gets killed on film on, on yeah. Mondays. Like I, I can't be, be like, come on guys, you got to step up in these moments. Yeah. It's like, you just got roasted, man. Yeah. And it's like, you can't be the workout warrior when you lift less than everyone. It's like, right. yeah, yeah. Throwing up 175 on bench. Right. right. I was throwing like 155. I, uh, that was the only time I really did lead. And it wasn't because I was stronger than these guys, but because I like, 
didn't take breaks. I never ended up, you know, doubled over with my hand on my knees, like tired. It was always like, it was all about uh, leading by actions totally through training. You know what I mean? But it was never, I was never like just a vocal guy or a rah-rah guy. It's not really my style anyway, but I felt like to your point, like if, unless you're, yeah, unless, unless you're in the, in the mix and really playing, you know, it's tough to, I don't know, at least for me to, to feel justified and saying anything. And, you know, and, and that was a tough time for Texas too. Like we, it was after post Colt McCoy and Vince Young. Yeah. So like we weren't great, you know, we were, we had good players. We just, you know, struggled a little bit with the quarterback play. And then we had so many injuries and like coaching changes. And yeah. It was just a tough time. You know, we, we had winning records, but never, never won the big 12 championship. Never were in the national championship discussion or anything like that. So they were looking for leaders, you know? And so are you firing off long snaps? By the way, I was the long snapper. I just want that to be known. Nice. I was the backup. The reason why is because my best friend was the punter. And oh, I've been yeah. freaking throwing snaps to this guy. So I just got crazy good at it. And then the one time our long snapper broke his hand and I had to step in and they called freaking fake. And I fired it over my buddy oh, no. and he got killed. And I was like, it's my only long snap in a game in my whole life. And I fired it over this guy's head. We lost like 40 yards or something like oh, that. Wow. And I got my punter killed. But anyways. <laughs> well, that never happened to me. Yeah. Well. <laughs> That's funny though. That would be a different situation. I can't believe they called a fake in that situation. Oh, no, with the new guy. Well, if they called a fake there, is it, was it a short snap to, was it supposed to be? To the back, yeah. Bring the center in. Yeah, right. Why? Like the defense is going to know. Well, so our starting center, so our center broke his hand. He was the long snapper. Oh, and so and that that but so he was still snap. He was still being the center, but they were like, ah, oh, it's all right. But I could chuck, I mean, I could chuck the ball. Like I, yeah. I, I was really, I could do, I was a better snapper than he was. Right, right. But he was a little bit more accurate. Right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, so That's I tried to so throw funny. it to that back, threw it over his head. But in the fake, you know, the punter fakes, like it goes over his head, but it actually went over his head. And so he's faking like, oh, it's going over my head. And then he just gets killed because <laughs> he's like fake mailing out. And then he sees the ball and he's like, uh-oh. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Too late. That's funny. Yeah. I uh, I chose long snapping because the starter was graduating and so was the backup. And they were both really good. But the other backups, I did, didn't think did a particularly great job. I'd never done it before, but I just gave myself a couple of months. I started snapping at 31, <laughs> gave myself a couple of months um, to figure it out and just, you know, was patient with it and was like, hey, look, you know, just understand you're going to suck for a bit. Just get the reps in, keep doing it. Do not quit and see what happens. That was a great lesson in life right there for me because every other thing I've tried, like it, I'm not a quick, I'm not like a super fast learner. I think people assume that because I pick things up quick timeline wise, but it's because I put in like triple the time anybody else does every day. I don't take a day off and eventually it comes to fruition. You start to figure it out. Like your body follows the mind. If you really believe it, you're going to achieve it as corny as that is, but it's true. And so I, yeah, I started, I started snapping balls into a wall first. It's like just real short. Um, I was like watching YouTube videos and Googling it and all this stuff. And uh, I went overseas that summer with the Texas National Guard and was snapping overseas, brought some footballs with me. Uh, any free time I had, I built a target out of a plywood, you know, that had like two feet above the ground. It had like a, you know, one foot diameter hole 
for uh, field goals, extra points. And then a couple feet above that, it had like a two foot diameter hole for you know, the, the punt snaps, which are about twice as long as field goal snaps. And I just would like not quit for the day until I got 10 in a row in the hole in each one. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, eventually just figured it out, got back to Texas before my sophomore year and uh, won the backup job for the first game. And that first game, they had a freshman they'd recruited to do it. Really nice kid, but he, you know, he was 18, 19 years old, 101,000 people. And the first game he, he didn't do so hot. And so I started for 38 games straight after that. That's and, wild. Uh, <laughs> 38 games. Yeah. 38 games. Probably about, I did the math, I think around 500 snaps or so. Never over anybody's head though. <laughs> I was under pressure. I know. You're good. You're good. Uh, you're starting corner. This yeah, is my only job. That's true. You got one job, boy. It was funny too, because I hated returning kicks. And so it was like every special team drill is like, I got to go with the punter, man. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Can't do it. Were you thinking NFL? Like at this point? It was always, you know, pipe dream back in my head ever since I was like four years old. Dressed up for Halloween like Joe Montana. Yeah. I'm always just, I dream way bigger than I probably should. Uh, but I do pursue it. I do chase those dreams and then... I'm willing to adjust, obviously. Never would have thought. I didn't even know what a long snapper was when I went to Texas. But, you know, once I got there, I was like, I just need to find a way on the field. This is it. And once I got that, I started doing like decent. Especially my senior year when I, I got invited to a senior all-star game at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, I put on a little bit of weight. But I played in college at like 185, 190. I was oh, wow. not big. And I know NFL snappers, like the lightest one in the league is like 230. You know what I mean? They're big. And taller than me. So part of me was like, I probably won't get a look because of that, but you never know. These guys play a little older. And I go to that senior all-star game and like four teams like interviewed me, like NFL teams are like, so are you like considering? I'm like, yeah, of course. Yes. You know? <laughs> Back in my head, I'm like, does this guy know how old I am? Does he have any idea? But part of it was that opportunity was, you know, they knew I had grit, determination, all these things they wanted in their locker room. And, uh, yeah, so I put on a ton of pounds. I, I, I ate about 7,000 calories a day and lifted twice a day, cut cardio out. <laughs> and I put on like 30 pounds in like four months. Wow. And went to pro day draft rolls around and I had offers from the St. Louis Rams at the time and the Seahawks Seahawks had been to back-to-back Super Bowls. It was like Pete Carroll, Marshawn Lynch. Uh, Russell Wilson, Richard Sherman, Doug Baldwin, all yeah. these guys, Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas. Uh, they were the hot team. I they was had like, Legion of Boom, man. Yeah. This is like historic defense. Right. And I knew I was a long shot to make the final roster no matter where I went. And uh, talked to a couple of people, you know, especially my dad was just like, I mean, he's from the Pacific Northwest too, but also he was just like, all things considered, like, I mean, come on, <laughs> you got to go, you got to go big. You went to Texas. Yeah. I was like, all right, fair enough. So I accepted the free agency contract from the Seahawks and, you know, went out to OTAs training camp, got to play in the preseason, you know, ultimately did get cut, which was the right move. I was not the best. There was two <laughs> long snappers in camp. I wasn't the best one. I did great. Played against the Broncos and like did it as good as I could do. But yeah, I was just fortunate to, I got there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I still got the jersey hanging in my closet. Yeah, pretty pretty special. Did you ever have those moments where, whether it's at Texas or, you know, in the locker room there where you were like, people look to you 
or maybe they didn't really understand what you did in the military or anything like that, but where you had those conversations where you were like, trust me, guys, life could be a lot worse. <laughs> you know, Coach Brown would, Mac Brown would ask me when things were going a little bit sideways or the, you know, especially in training camp when it's hot and it's like, it's just, you're miserable. It's two days, you know, to talk to the guys maybe before a practice or something like that. And, you know, I never wanted to make anybody feel like I was bragging about my experiences totally. or like, you don't know what it's like to do this, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so I, I would often just talk about guys I serve with situations like this and, you know, a mindset we have to have going into the day-to-day -day rigors of being at war, for instance, you know, or like not being complacent, you know, and understanding that every play matters, every minute matters. The minute that you do stop paying attention or lose concentration, like things, something always happens yeah. <laughs> bad, you know, and you don't want to be the one responsible for the team failing, you know, and at war, it's somebody's life. In football, it's maybe, you know, a touchdown going the other way or whatever. So, yeah, we, uh, and, you know, I would talk about stuff like that, but it was more, I, I think I was more of a mentor in like a one-on-one -on -one situation. Like I was trying to be there for all the guys in the locker room. I tried to be one of the guys. I mean, I went out and hung out with these guys that were 10 years younger than me. Like those yeah. were my friends in college. That's who I went to the bars with. Yeah. That's who I, uh, you know, walked to classes with and went to classes with and shot pool with in the lounge, you know, or whatever. Like I was just, I just wanted to be, not, not just because I wanted to be part of the team or just one of the guys, but I wanted them to feel like I was one of the guys and not feel intimidated or like they couldn't relate to me in some way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like we see with, uh, Ollie Villanueva and folks like that, yeah. that, that are successful in the NFL now that, I mean, it's like, you know, you can't walk two feet without that conversation, you know, bronze star and, you know, army ranger, or, you know, in your case, special forces that those things come up you know, potentially as a narrative sometimes, but also just like a lot of times, like it's just your life, right? Like the, yeah. those were your experiences. They should come up. If you, you know, this, like, I think it was Kurt Warner was the one who was uh, bagging groceries. Right. And yeah. then like that gets brought up every single thing, yeah. you know, a year always. later he's in the Super Bowl. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff like that. It's not necessarily military specific, but when it is your story and you see those kind of, you know, things happening and you, you hear those things and then you're on to the next phase of your life. What was that kind of like to be in this moment where like, I can do anything now, especially the guy who walks down the, 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 the shopping cart uh, yeah. and doesn't know what he wants. Like you can now do literally anything and you have the story to back it up. I mean, it's kind of like I alluded to before, like it's uh, exciting, definitely exciting because you can, you can do anything you want, especially in, in you know, in this country where, pretty fortunate to have a lot of options, a lot of opportunities, but it's also a little bit daunting because you're afraid of making the wrong choice or investing too much time in something that doesn't work out or doesn't turn out, or maybe you're really not that into it. So, um, I, I think I was lucky. I know I was lucky transition wise to have football sort of after the military or towards the end of the military anyway. And then that's, this dream uh, of, you know, film and storytelling that I'm still, I've always kind of been into that was always in the back of my head waiting in the wings for when 
all this other stuff was done. Yeah. Cause other, the other things have a bit of a timeline just cause your body breaks down. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff you can do forever really. And, but I still like, I mean, I thought about considered going back into the military after I got cut from the Seahawks, you know, that was the real transition for me and sort of the real kind of freak out time. Even though I had all these people saying like, man, your story is incredible. And like, you could, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I'm like, I mean, I don't honestly, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't know. I know. I, don't, I know. I don't want to get into politics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> That's about the only thing. So yeah, it was just, uh, it was just take, taking that time to kind of really think about it, but then also from my own experiences and from others, knowing that if it's not something I'm fully into, just because it sounds good, like don't, don't do that thing. Whatever gets you the most excited or, um, you know, is, is sort of pulling you in that direction, like emotionally, just go do that. Even if it doesn't, isn't technically a job or is not really profitable or whatever, because if you don't, if you're not happy what you're doing, or at least pursuing and trying to do, like I'm, I'm way happier failing every day doing what I'm doing now than I would be succeeding every day at something that I was kind of 50, 50 on. Do you know what I mean? Dude, and I, could, I, and I, could be making, I could be making all the money and doing all these things and having all these things, but I would just like the what if thing would kill me. You know what I mean? Cause it almost killed me with the football thing as yeah. silly as that sounds. But if I never did that, it would still be bothering me right now. It would be. It'd be in the back of my head and it's too late now. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe it's not. You never know. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Is there any teams listening? XFL. Less, XFL. less need. Look out. <laughs> yeah, less need. Less. Now, now you're, you're in LA. You offered different. me once. Uh, yeah. Right. Got um, a place around the corner. Exactly. Mentor some of these young guys. There you go. When did the idea for MVP merging vets and players start floating around? Jay sort of, I don't want to say confronted me about it because it wasn't a negative thing, but he brought it up to me during that time when I was considering what to do next and the, you know, the, the, the quickly fleeting thought of joining the military and going back in, you know, his thing was like, look, there's a lot, you got a platform now, there's a lot you could do for the veteran community and you should, probably should do either way. It's obviously up to you, but you know, there's something I've been thinking about doing as far as bringing a athletes and vets together um, because you've talked to me, you know, me being Jay and I, you being Nate, you've talked to me about how similar those locker rooms are. You, yeah. know, you played football and you were in the military and, um, but also the struggles with the transition and the brotherhood and the identity and the identity crisis when you're in your twenties and thirties, if you're lucky and it's over and the uniform is gone, all that stuff. It's very similar. And, uh, I was like, well, what are we going to do? And he was like, I don't know, but we need to kind of bring these groups together. And I thought it was a great idea. And it was something that, you know, got me excited about, uh, a new, a new adventure, a new mission. And I had recently been down to this veterans homeless shelter in, it's in Hollywood. It's in East Hollywood, not West Hollywood. It's on sunset in Alexandria. And this place is, they call it the barracks, the vets that live there. Um, it's actually called the Hollywood Veteran Center. There's 50 bunks in there. They're always full. It's all guys that have been to Iraq and Afghanistan, like young veterans. You walk through the hallways. It's like every cot's covered with an OD green wool blanket. It's like the basic training barracks. You know yeah, what I mean? It's totally. crazy. 
it's usually it's typically like two to a room, but they all, you know, they do chores, they cook for themselves at times, they clean up around there. It's more of a transition house. It's like, all right, going through some tough stuff, you know, whether it's post-traumatic stress related or, or not. Sometimes it's stuff that was related to before they joined, you know, yeah. and then they're coming back out of the military, like we spoke about offline, um, going back to that prior existence where you lived before and maybe some of the difficulties you had growing up. So many of us that joined the military sort of ran to it from something. <laughs> so then a lot of them are back in that something and, you know, things can be challenging. Life can be challenging, especially if you join the military uh, at a, such a young age, like a lot of these guys did, 17, and say you're out at 25, and like that's all you know. You were a sergeant, and you led people, you know, and you went to war four times or whatever, and now you're back in, you know, L.A., <laughs> and uh, the knuckleheads you grew up with are doing the same knucklehead stuff. Yep. Maybe you didn't have a good you know, family and uh, a good mentor and uh, who knows, all kinds of different reasons. But essentially that house, those people that are in there trying to refocus and find that next mission and, and this place helps them do that. So being around these guys, I started talking to some of them about this MVP idea, specifically Denver Morris, who I know you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Denver was... Uh, back-to-back deployments. He lost 29 guys from his battalion, more than I think any unit in Kurt War in GWAT. And then since 2009, when they came back from that deployment, 45 have taken their own lives. Just from that one battalion. I can't fathom that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like a, it's like a, a, a really big senior class, you know, and 45 of the people in there uh, quit, you know, and that's, like, I, I can't imagine how you don't have guilt and, and wonder what you could have done different and totally. blame, blame yourself. I mean, that's what we're taught to do in the military anyway, is take responsibility for stuff. And so, you know, to, to have Denver start to sort of rally the guys up from the, from the shelter there, bring them to the gym, to Glazer's gym at Unbreakable Performance Center in West Hollywood, this like high end, yeah. it's all celebrities in there. It's a fighter's gym, like crazy. And they come in there a couple hours every week and we train together. And then we like, just talk about stuff on the mat. You know what I mean? And it's like an open forum. Uh, We're all peer to peer counseling. We're coaching each other up. There's nobody with the magic words to just fix anything. It's just building that community, being there for one another. And, uh, that recognition of scars being a good thing, you know, being proud of that, but also that you're not alone that we, not only us in the military there and the veterans and the athletes, like everybody has some form of trauma. Everybody has some level of post-traumatic stress from something, you know what I mean? So we're all going through those same things. It's, uh, there's value in that too. You know, there's such a thing as post-traumatic growth as General Mattis has talked about and a lot yeah. of people have talked about, but we, we don't have to just wallow in that and blame that you know, or spend our time waiting for organizations like, you know, even valuable ones like the VA to yeah. fix it. Cause nobody's going to fix it. You have to take responsibility for Absolutely. that. You have to fix that. So anyway, that's, uh, that's really how it all, that's how it came together. That's how it started. And, uh, now we've got MVP in four cities, LA, Vegas, Chicago, Atlanta, soon to be New York, soon to be Seattle, soon to be San Diego, soon to be 
all over the country. You know, we want to start out at least in every NFL city, but you know, we work with athletes, professional athletes from uh, any any sport, um, and veterans from any uh, from any branch. You know, and if I didn't say it, MVP stands for merging vets and players. When I met Denver and uh, started being involved with the organization pretty early on, one of the things that was so crazy is that this is the ultimate bottom up need, right? Like this was not some like grand idea. It wasn't some orchestrated thought. It was you and Jay being like, we should probably put military veterans and athletes together and let them like do some combatives on a mat once a week and see what the heck happens. Right. Was this your first like company organization, uh, that you'd like founded? Like, what what was, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I haven't really founded anything. I've, I've invested in some things, (laughs) Yeah, but I hadn't like, uh, yeah, really started anything that was kind of my, very much my brand, but also like, yeah, organizationally sort of put something together, put an idea into action. And it was very much that, like we didn't, we didn't know exactly what it was going to be. We still don't know. It's still forming, still totally. developing and changing. And, um, but it's just, uh, it's cool to see, you know, these people come in on a weekly basis and the transformation over a few months for some people that come in and just haven't worked out since they got out of the military or stopped playing ball. Haven't, uh, you looking at me? Why are you saying, no, you saying no, like no, that? no, 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 <laughs> I was not. I'm just sweating bowls right now. This is like a sauna. In here. I know. You said it's, a, it's the hot. It's this is why is they call it, it the hot oh seat. Oh my gosh. Like, look at this. That's why they call it the Coming hot seat. through. It's on camera. I know. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, just to see them, you know, spend those first couple of months kind of just sitting back and listening and then eventually sharing their story. And then a year later, they're like some of the most valuable coaches we have in there talking about um, stuff that they've gone through and uh, making those comparisons to people that are bringing up their, you know, current issues or stuff that they're dealing with, struggling with. And it's really, it's really cool. It's really hard to describe. You really have to see it. Yeah. You have to go. Um, there, we've got some videos online, you know, through NFL.com and Fox sports and some of that stuff, but it's still impossible to really show it unless you are there boots on the ground. We talk a lot about how important like having a co-founder is having someone who believes in you that you can bring something to an organization, what was it like for Jay to kind of look you in the face and just be like, you know, you're the guy, right? Like you're the person who has straddled both lines. Like you're the person to do this and kind of him being like, and I'm the other person to do this. And I know you have lots of people that have supported, but, but just have that, like, we can actually do something here that has impact. And if we impact kind of one person, like it's a win sort of a thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit uh, daunting too, because you're worried about like, how's this going to be perceived? Cause there is still a lot of people that kind of have this, I think it's way less than it was really four years ago when we started, we came up with the idea, but uh, this, like how, how can you compare those two worlds? They're so different. This guy's making millions of dollars playing a game. This guy's making nothing going to fight for, you know, his country or whatever. And I get that. I do. But like I said, I've been in those, both of those locker rooms. We're all human beings. We all want the same basic stuff, you know? And 
we all, more than anything, the most consistent thing that is missed is the brotherhood camaraderie, you know, or the locker the tribe. room. Yeah. The tribe, this, that sense of purpose, you know, of, uh, being part of something that matters and feeling like if we didn't show up today, th- things wouldn't be as good for the team. You know what I mean? And when you don't have that pressure anymore, when you have that lack of traumatic stress, <laughs> it messes with you. You yeah. know what I mean? And you just feel like, well, now nothing matters that I do. Uh, like, okay, I can do whatever I want. I can do anything. And that's also like a scary thing. Cause you're just like, well, if I can do anything, then why don't I just sit around and do nothing? Yeah. Or like, you know why I mean? do I need to be here? Yeah, exactly. Right? And I think that that's one of the things, you know, there's so many parallels with business to this. And I think it's, the, you know, the other piece of this and obviously, but again, it's the same sort of thing. It's like people working towards a shared goal that it's like, you will have an impact. Like if you put the next foot forward, I promise you can have an impact. Like any military veteran could have an impact in a startup tomorrow if they put their mind to it. Right. Right. And it's like, that's where there's need. Like go find someone who's having like trying to figure stuff out and they need someone problem to solve. Exactly. That's all we need. (laughs) You know, that's all I want to do. I want to solve problems. And whether that's through, for me, it's like through storytelling that, but it gets, gets me excited. I love the creativity and the challenge with that, but, uh, there's a million ways to do it, you know? And that like, I mean, that makes me think of the, Campbell Trophy Summit, you know, you jumped on my, uh, my Sorry, segue, man, got you. No, I'll segue for you. But that, I mean, that's what, you know, we're here. I'm here in Palo Alto. I'm glad I was able to do this in studio because it's way more effective than on the phone for me anyway. Yeah, totally. Um, but you know, I came up here for this Campbell Trophy Summit, which it's, it's these, uh, college football players that were all finalists for the, uh, William V. Campbell Trophy, which is essentially the academic Heisman of college football. That's the best way to describe it. And we were up here at this conference, you know, we get to sit down with business leaders, mostly in the tech industry, but not just in the tech industry, um, sort of pick each other's brain on that, but understand like the value we bring to this field, you know, versus the football field was we know how to work with others. We know how to problem solve. We know when we're behind things are going our way, how to flip that change momentum, all that stuff's like valuable in the business world. And, uh, you know, uh, Bill Campbell himself, he, he was a football coach at Columbia. Yeah. Um, but then he, you know, he went on to mentor Jeff Bezos and, and, uh, Steve jobs and like all these incredible, uh, leaders in the business world. And at the same time, he was always about like giving back and making sure that the next generation was, you know, suited for that and like taking care of his tribe and no offense to athletes, but like veterans have that not only in spades, but like to another level because we're doing all those things for, for very little pay, uh, with our lives on the line in a foreign country, you know, where the cultural and language barriers are so, uh, crazy that, uh, oftentimes we're not even able to really communicate with those that we're working with, you know, um, at least, uh, verbally or, or in a simple way. Um, but we, you know, we have to figure it out. We have to like solve the puzzle and, and, and even more than that, we don't even know exactly what the mission is sometimes. You yep. know what I mean? That that's unclear. Yep. And we're still finding a way to make an impact, to make an effect in those communities, positive effect. And, uh, man, that is exactly what the business world is, you know, especially 
at high level with um, new industries and new technologies and all that. Like, yes, you need to have those engineers and those people that understand how to do that stuff. And some of those, sometimes veterans are suited for doing that as well. But beyond that, like just because you don't understand the industry that you're getting into or you're interested in doesn't mean you can't catch up very fast, learn that, uh, but also be able to apply all the same types of um, mission-oriented leadership that you uh, learned in the military and were a part of. It's, it's, it's the same thing. It really is. You know, and people want to work with hustlers. They want to work with people yeah. that we always do something about it too. Yeah. We'll sit there, we'll have our little complaining pity party, you know, and we'll, we'll MF the, the, the high end leadership behind closed doors, behind their backs, <laughs> but we'll turn around and we'll fix the, the issue. We'll solve the problem. We'll find a way uh, we might not do it with a smile on our face, but we'll do it, you know, and we'll have that nice dark sense of humor to go along with it, to help each other, you know, carry through the the challenge of whatever that thing is. And it becomes fun. I mean, the most fun I had in the military was in the toughest situations, the toughest environments and in, whether it was in training or in combat. Um, those are my greatest memories, you know, and it sucked at the time, but like we did it together. We didn't quit, you know, we, we figured it out. And we somehow got it done. Maybe it was just hanging by a thread, but we got it done. And uh, that's what I love about the business world, the ch you know, the challenges of the business world. And uh, I mean, that's what we can bring uh, to this. I mean, the, to the tech industry is like insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't even understand it at all. <laughs> but uh, I know if I wanted I know to, if, anyone if I could, you know, I could get right in the mix and like be a part of it. No, and I mean, and I think, you know, to the point about the Campbell Trophy, like you're talking about some of the smartest people in all of college athletics. And you like, you can go look at the receipts. You can go look at the Peyton Mannings, uh, the Alex Max, the uh, John Urschel's, the people who have had extremely successful Urschel careers. was my year. Yeah. Do you know his like background? Yeah, he's ridiculous. Yes. He's, like, he's like a like actual he's a genius. math whiz. Yeah. He's an actual so he's like, genius. Yeah, he's like, he's like written papers and everything, yeah. right? Like, yeah, he's like yeah. a published guy. But, yeah. uh, and then you get like, shout out to Andrew Rodriguez, my army, my West Point guy. Um, but uh, you're talking about people that are a cut above. One of the things that I think, you know, is a clear way that veterans can have a difference in the business community in the world is about our worldliness. Like you, even before you joined the military, were, you know, traveling the world, trying to help people. You wrote an open letter to Colin Kaepernick about all of the national anthem protests. And I think it really speaks to the level of support that the military community, that the athlete community has for one another and has for like, in this case, America, about how when you serve with people, it doesn't matter their gender, their race, anything like that. When they're on your team and you're working towards the same mission, nobody cares. The only people who care are the people not in the arena. Yeah. Right. It's and true. so it's just one of those things. Like I saw that when, when you posted that about this kind of idea that we're all in this together anyways. Right. So to like break along divides, it makes no sense. And, uh, and it's something that it's just clear through your work at MVP, through your work at, at waterboys.org for a lot of the stuff that you've done and with your, you know, your acting and storytelling that like 
you constantly try to have a positive impact and it's regardless of what people's backgrounds are. Is that something that just like has always felt that way for you? Or is that something that you purposely try to make sure that people understand? My mom actually, you know, she said during, it was some, I don't know if it was ESPN or why there's some interview or feature about me that they did and they interviewed my parents and I'd never heard her say this before until I watched the video. And she said like, um, you know, Nate's always had issue with injustice in the world. And I think everybody like would agree with that. Of course they do. But I think it really bothered me even as a little kid when things just weren't fair or yeah. right. Or someone was getting treated, you know, wrongfully. You know, it just, it like irked me, even if it was me, if it was me too. Like if I'm getting treated unfair, it's going to bother me. So I, you know, I, I don't know where that comes from. It's probably, I mean, I have awesome parents and a really good family. I'm very fortunate in that regard. But uh, that, that is always like stuck with me. Uh, and the more I've you know, traveled and experienced things, the more I've come to find that we're just, we're all human beings. We're all the same species. We're all like, um, people know this, but we forget it. And we all want the same basic things. We want what's best for our families. We want to feel relatively safe. We want to be loved and, uh, and we want to matter, <laughs> you know, we want to belong and we want to matter. And so that's, uh, if you just take that understanding into any situation, even when it's something that scares you or it's people that you adamantly disagree with on a very fundamental level, like at the end of the day, they probably still want the same things you want. You know what I mean? They may have a different way of going about them or a, a different idea of like what success looks like specifically, but like they want, you know, they essentially want those same uh, core things. And, uh, you know, through that experience in the, in the military through the experience overseas more than anything, it just opened my eyes to, uh, to that idea and, and the realization too, that I don't have all the answers. I don't know, or I don't get to choose what's right or wrong. If I feel a certain way, it's a feeling or an emotion. doesn't mean it's right, you know, because I feel that way based on my experiences, you know, what I've seen and done and what I was raised in or whatever. And somebody else who feels differently and sees differently. And even if it's the most extreme example, typically it's mostly based on their experiences. You know what I mean? I don't think, I think very few people are just evil or bad people. Like I think that, that those people do exist. That's not most of us, you know, that's not 50% of the world or the country that just doesn't believe what you believe. Most of us are just trying to do the right thing and, you know, are, are trying to be good people and we, we want the world to be a better place. And so if you, if you go into that, in those situations, you look at, you know, that being able to sit down with Colin Kaepernick or someone that I disagree with in, in a lot of ways about certain things, at least a way of going about things, but I want the same things as him. I obviously want our country to be the most equal place on earth. I want our law enforcement to do the best job possible. I, I don't want them to, you know, do things that, bring shame upon the badge or the flag or whatever. And I, you know, I, I, I want things to get better. I'm, I think a true patriot is somebody that just wants, loves their country and wants it to improve. And so uh, going into the, the conversation with him, you know, I, I had that open mind and understanding that like, okay, he's gonna, he sees things differently than me in the sense of like, for him, what, success looks like, you know, but also I have this understanding of 
much of the developing world that I've been to and seen that like this place is pretty damn good and we have the opportunity to improve it here, you know, and we can speak out like he is speaking out. And the worst that's going to happen for the most part is we're going to get people shouting back at us. You know what I mean? Like nothing's, we're not going to get stoned to death. So for me, it was like imparting some of that stuff, which he understood and knew, but like kind of reminding that, Hey, you know, not everybody in the vet, vet, uh, veteran community uh, disagrees with you, but not everybody in the veteran uh, community agrees with you either. Like we're as diverse as any microcosm and some of us support you. Some of us won't, no matter what you do, even if you stood tomorrow with your hand in your heart, facing the flag, like there's people that are still going to hate you. Uh, there's no perfect gesture, uh, no matter what it is. And you know, that's just the way life is <laughs> like life is hard. People, uh, say things and we have our opinions and a lot of us will never change what we really feel. But as long as you treat people with respect uh, and are willing to listen uh, and maybe adjust, which he did, uh, I think people would uh, listen to you a little bit more, especially those that completely disagree with you. Yeah. And I think it's about like making it better than we got it. Right. It's like, we get like America's not that old, Mm-mm. you know, it's really not that old of a place. We've done a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. You know, we've and just like a, part and, of a lot of bad stuff. And I just think but not everybody in our country was a part of that, you know, and not everybody now is, you know, just because people with the same color skin of mine, ancestors made decisions, did things back then. That doesn't mean I have bad blood in me from that. Like that doesn't relate. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. People will argue that, uh, but it's, it's true. You know, that, that, that same you know, and somebody will think I'm a racist for saying this, but that same way of thinking those, the, this like, well, white people don't understand this because that like saying white people saying this whole group is grouped. Well, yeah, you know, it's any group, under, any like, group should just, never be grouped by the color of their skin. No. It's like the whole point, or, or, right? <laughs> or, or a choice somebody made that looks like them or is in their profession or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's just silly. It's like me going to, you know, uh, a, a very diverse neighborhood and I see somebody of color do something and then just making that decision that like, Oh, like those people, that's what those people do. You know what I mean? That's the same thing as saying like, you know, white people, um, they're all white privileges. Like, you know, everybody that's white just has like all this privilege and all these like things. It's just, it's just not true. Some do, some do. And maybe by and large, like probably by and large, you know, white people have had, even now still have more opportunities, but like, it's not like there's not white people trying to flip that and trying to make it better and equal for everybody. Like there's plenty of white people that are trying to do the right thing too. And I think it just comes down to like, let's, let's actually solve the problem. And I think that that's like one of the things that's so good about the dialogue is like, let's get towards the problems. And it's like, whatever that is, that's what we need to get towards. It's like, let's solve the solutions. Exactly. I mean, we keep point pointing fingers at each other and, you know, there's some people that don't want things to ever fully improve because they don't have anything to complain about. Yeah, know, and that's, right? and that's people of all skin colors. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's just, there's just people that are like that, you know, and that's fine. I mean, if you want to live that way, <laughs> if you want to always be, you know, find something to be mad about, but that's not the way I want to live. And I want to try to fix a problem and move on and find the next one. That's what makes me happy solving them. Last question. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Man, I mean, I've seen, I've received a lot of really good advice, but you know, something that 
sticks out to me. And I wasn't even in the locker room when this was said, because I wasn't even on the team yet. But uh, uh, Mac Brown, my coach at, at Texas, University of Texas, after they won the national championship, Vince Young, 2005, 2006 season, you know, they're in the locker room and everybody's celebrating and it's like the greatest moment ever, right? And, you know, he steps up and addresses the team. And the first thing out of his mouth is, you know, celebrate this win, enjoy it, you deserve it. Don't let don't let this be the greatest thing that ever happens to you in your life. You know what I mean. Build upon this. You know, this is it's is incredible. But like, if this is the pinnacle, if this is the top, life's gonna suck from here on out. Yeah. You know, he didn't say it exactly like that, but like that first line. I mean, that's what he said. You know, and it's a great quote. It's a great quote for anybody at any level. You know, doing anything. I don't care if you just received an Oscar. You know, or you were. Uh, you know, you got that job or whatever that is, you know, you had, even you had your, you, you know, you just had a child or you got married or all those like things that are like, supposed to be the greatest your company days. or don't whatever. Don't settle right. on that. You know, don't like try to try to have a better day. You know what I mean? Try to do something greater, help more people. Um, and, and never stop doing that until you die. That's at least for me, that's the only thing that's going to make me happy. I enjoy certain things, relaxing. I have my hobbies and all that, but like just doing my hobby for the rest of my life, isn't going to make me happy. It's, you know, finding those challenges and trying to, it's the hustle and the, the grit and the failure that, that, that whole like process and journey of finding that, that new thing that excites me and then trying to make it happen. That whole portion makes me way happier than the achievement. You know what I mean? The achievement's cool for like a moment, but then the next day you're like, okay, now what? You know what I mean? So, you know, that was a, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. I love it, man. Nate, you're awesome. We'll follow along. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.